Um, okay, so uh, welcome to Jericho Road Church. Glad you guys are here. Uh, what do we love to do? We love, we love, love God. God. We love others. Well, what do we What do we say? I, I love God. God. I love you. Uh, that's so true. Uh, all day this morning, I uh, need a volunteer. I don't normally do a volunteer where someone comes up sta- on stage. I need a volunteer who doesn't mind a little bit of uh, pain, actually. It may be a little painful. You could get possibly hurt. Uh, anyone? Uh, all right, Derek. Derek, I volunteer you. All right. This is Mark Voluntold. When, when there are no volunteers, uh, Derek's going to come up. I don't know if you all know Derek. Here's Mark. He is a good guy, so he may have never been on video. Oh, yeah. Hello, Derek. How are you? Would you hold up your hand for me really fast? Either one. Um, let, let's go with that one. These on there. Yeah. And, uh, okay, so uh, uh, Derek has no idea what's going on, right? No. But this is Derek. He, he uh, works, uh, serves in our booth. He's been coming for about a, maybe a year now. So what a blessing. So glad you're here, Derek. Um, and so I'm going to uh, do something. It may cause a little bit of pain. Just hold that real, Just hold your arm still for a second. Okay. Let's move. Oh. How'd that feel? Now, was that uh, was that fun? No. Mm, was it worth coming up for? No. Uh, well, I forgot to tell you about something. There was a reward for whoever would volunteer. And so here's your prize. Go ahead and hold that. Now, how did that feel? Really good. Okay. Uh, now, was it worth it? Yes. All right, thank you, Derek. Thank you. Thank you. into our passage where we pick up in Colossians this morning. In Colossians 1.24, Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is lacking regarding Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. Now here's a reminder, Paul is in prison. Um, It's unknown if he was going to be put to death. He wasn't sure what was going to happen to him in his life. And, uh, um, and he says, as I'm sitting in this place of suffering, I'm rejoicing. This is not how we view suffering. This is a, a, a radically different perspective from Paul uh, that he says this suffering is a source of rejoicing. Now, Paul's not an idiot, and he's not a masochist. He's not sitting there saying, like, this is actually, like, fun. Like, ooh, this is so nice. It's not... It's not as if he enjoys the pain part of it, but what does he enjoy? He enjoys or he rejoices in the result of it. Just like Derek was up here, pain part, no good, so lame, not glad I came up here until there was a payout. Now, if I ask Derek to come up, Derek, you want to volunteer again? He's like twice, right? He wants to come up twofold times. He'll come up anytime I ask him from now on, he will be the first to raise a hand. Uh, because there is a reward to it. See, it's, it's not about the pain. And when, when he says, I rejoice in my suffering, it's not suffering just so you suffer. It's because there is a great result from it. Anyone who's a mother in here, uh, when you gave birth to a child, was that like it was really fun and like it was pain-free and it was wonderful? It, it wasn't. And if I asked any mom, was that a difficult situation? Was there struggle? Was there, was there pain? Was there difficulty? And they would all say yes. And then if we asked them, was it worth it? They would say sometimes. And they would say yes. They would say yes. And they mean it. In the core of their hearts, they mean it. It was worth it. Why? Because of what it produced. Because of what 
came as a result of the suffering. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying here. Suffering for Christ is similar to that. The pain is not the point at all. It's the result of the pain. See, James says, in the book of James, he says, suffering produces perseverance, this great quality. In the book of Romans, Paul says that it sharpens our character, like who we are as human beings. It strengthens us. In 1 Peter, it says, struggles produce a nearer connection to Jesus so that we can actually find rest in him in a different way than we could before we had a struggle. In our passage today, we see that it strengthens the church. The worth of each of these kind of things that we see all throughout the Bible, the Bible speaks in the New Testament about struggle all the time and, and that it's a rejoicing situation, but because of the results of it or what's produced by it. And all of those results are worth a little bit of suffering. And so in our passage, he says, I rejoice for what I'm suffering for you. I fill up in my flesh what's lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions. And if you're not tempted, you're immediately, uh, pull that verse up there, you're immediately tempted to think that he's talking about um, his afflictions like dying on the cross. But this word that's afflictions that's used here never once refers to like actual death. It's actually talking about distress or troubles in the trials of life, not the pains of death. And so when, when Paul says, like, my suffering produces good in the church, and I'm filling up the afflictions of Christ, that's a really weird phrase. But this is a reference to the afflictions that Christ uh, endured during his ministry. These afflictions aren't complete because Jesus' ministry isn't complete. So in this sense that Jesus actually still suffers as he ministers through his people. And we see this really clearly. Remember when Jesus appears to Paul and he knocks him off his donkey and he says to Paul, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? But Saul wasn't persecuting. Jesus had already resurrected into heaven. Paul was what? It was clear in Acts, Paul was persecuting the church. And so, but Jesus says, hey, you're persecuting me. So persecuting the church is in a very real sense persecuting Christ because Christ abides in them and they in him. And so there's this really interesting idea if we think about it for us as well. So it wasn't just in Acts, so Jesus already resurrected. It wasn't just the apostles or when he was walking around. For those who experience the resurrected Jesus and walk in him, which is all of us now, there's this really interesting sense where we're connected to Jesus and he to us, when we suffer, he suffers. Whenever you go through suffering, you've got to know that, that the Bible is pretty clear here that, that Jesus is suffering along with, along with you. He is next to you in it. He's a, in, in some spiritual sense, he is experiencing that suffering with you and telling you it's all right because something good can be produced even out of the worst of circumstances. Paul says, I'm taking these sufferings and and." filling up these afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. See, Paul didn't suffer like uh, just for himself or in a way that an aesthetic would. Those are those people like who, who beat themselves up just because they think it makes them near to God or something like that. Instead, he suffers for the sake of the body, which is the church. And I think that it's become somewhat popular nowadays to, to like dislike or to distrust or to negatively view the church Yet Paul valued the church enough that he was willing to suffer for the sake of the church, for the good of the church. That's important in his heart. See, the, the thing is, he suffers so that the church could magnify God. 
even in the difficult times as he is. So he's saying, like, I'm in prison, and I'm rejoicing even for these sufferings so that, church, you could grow and you can rejoice even in your sufferings. You can magnify God even in the difficult situations, even if life is going wrong. But sometimes I know if, if you've encountered things that go wrong with God, probably I tend to feel like something's going really bad. I'm like, God, where are you in this? Why'd you leave me? Why, why am I dealing with this alone, God? Why, why have you let me down? And I immediately think that God somehow has uh, let me down if I encounter some sort of suffering. And I don't normally go to magnifying God and rejoicing in the Lord when I'm rejoicing in suffering. But in reality, if I only magnify God during the great times, if I only rejoice when things are really good, then I'm going to miss out on half of the magnifying opportunities. If I, if I only give glory to God in good times and not in bad times, then half of the times of my existence are not going to bring glory or rejoicing or magnification to the Lord. And that's not something I want. Such an opportunity provides a platform at least for Paul as he's in prison, it provides him, this suffering provides a platform to encourage the church for the message to go out even stronger. He continues this way. He says, I've become uh, the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that's been kept hidden for ages and generations, but, it, but it's now been disclosed to the Lord's people. The mystery is the gospel. And he's using the mystery in this sense, in the sense of a truth that was unknown but has now been revealed. It's sort of like at the end of Scooby-Doo when they find out that it was the caretaker all along, right? And so that was a mystery now revealed. And that's what he's saying. This mystery has been revealed now to you, the Lord's people. For years, the Jews didn't know how God was going to provide. They believed that God would send a Messiah. They just didn't know how or what it would look like. Now, we live in a time, and the Colossians live in a time, where the Messiah, the Christ, has been revealed, and it's for our boon and our benefit. This specific mystery that Paul refers here deals, deals with God's, uh, Jesus' plan for the church to make one body out of Jew and Gentile, all based on the grace, not on works, not on, on race or merit. And we see that clear that he's talking about that in the next verse, where he says, to them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I think perhaps we take it for granted that the Gentiles are included, uh, not just Jewish people are included in God's kingdom. Uh, so we sort of say like, yeah, of course they are, right? But this would be news to the Jews of the day. The Jews of the day, they thought that like they're the chosen people, they're the ones God loves, they're the ones God's saving, not the Gentiles. Despite all the times in the Old Testament when God said, like, I want you to be a light of the nations. I want to gather all the nations to myself. Uh, you're going to be a, uh, I'm going to bring the kingdom of the Gentiles under me. Despite saying that, the Jews were like, yeah, 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 they're really important too, but not as important as the Jews. They would automatically put, yeah, the nations of the Gentiles are okay, but they're less okay than the nation of Israel. And so this was a reality. I mean, this was... Uh, not a reality that the Gentiles were going to receive the Messiah at all. And so this would be news to them. And so this is that crowning wonder to Paul. Paul's like, you know what's so, so amazing? That the Gentiles are included this. That, that the redemptive grace didn't just cover Israel, it covers all people. That they too would be recipients of the hope of the glory that's found in Christ Jesus. 
Like it's not our hard work or it's our devotion to God. It's not uh, the power of our own spirituality. It's not race-based. It's not if you were chosen in the right uh, race or religion that you were born into. It's not that you're an Israelite. He says it is because of Christ and Christ alone. The abiding presence of Jesus is the hope of glory. That's the hope of glory. See, hope is critically important. Without hope, life is not worth living. Yet things people often hope for or hope in or, or put at their hope in as a substitute to God, those things always fall short. So maybe you hope to own a home one day, and you go out to your home, and, the, and then a financial crisis hit in 2008 or whatever, and you lost your home. You see, homes are too temporary to put our hope in. Maybe, maybe you got married, and you hope for that perfect marriage, and uh, maybe... Things didn't go quite as planned, and there were some fights, and you got divorced. Or maybe your spouse died. Or may, maybe you're in a marriage, and you're barely limping along. You see, if our hope is in people, people are too temporary to place our hope in. Maybe you had that dream job in mind, and you, you went through all of your school education, then you even got a master's in the thing, and then you went out, and you got that dream job, and you, you hate it. <laughs> You don't like the job at all. See, jobs are all too temporary. The only lasting, permanent, eternal thing that will never let you down is the hope of Christ. And friends, let me, let me tell you, it is never too late to transfer your hope from the things that are temporary to the thing that is permanent. If you've been placing your hope tonight or your whole life, maybe on all these other things, you placed it in a relationship, you placed it on, on a job, you placed it in your financial status, you placed it in uh, how good-looking you were, how strong you were, whatever it was, it is not too late. And it is just so simple to say, God, I'm going to place my hope on you and not on these things that are temporary. And that's available at any time, all day long today. And if you're not ready for it today, tomorrow morning when you wake up, he's ready to let you put your hope in him, not in the things that are temporary that will always let you down. Paul continues in Colossians. He says, he is the one we proclaim, he, Jesus, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy that Christ, uh, energy Christ so powerfully works in me. See, Paul wanted the whole gospel to the whole world. It was for every person that each person would become spiritually mature in Christ. And he says it's the responsibility of the church to grow together in community, to grow together so that we can become mature together in Christ. Once we're saved, we have this opportunity to work alongside of God. We don't work to get God, but once we get God, God says, hey, work with me. Become mature, learn, grow, strengthen. I want strong, powerful Christians. And, and, and uh, we have that opportunity as he empowers us by his spirit to become fully mature in Christ. And he says, this message was presented with wisdom for everyone. Now, we, I told you before that this letter is part reaction to false teachers. And the, the false teachers that were at Colossae, they were saying, the secret gospel is only available for a few people. And here Paul's saying, no, it's available for all people. They were, they were talking about that salvation is, is uh, understood only by a select few, or sort of like a spiritual elite. That was what the false prophets were saying, the false teachers at Colossae. And he said, nope, this wisdom is for everyone. 
mature believers are less susceptible to that kind of heresy that was coming in, in Colossians. And so Paul says it's important that you become mature believers, that you'll be able to see the truth from the, the falsehoods. And he says, I want you to know how hard I'm contending for you and, and for those at Laodicea and for all of those that I haven't met, who haven't met me personally. Again, Paul confesses that uh, he's working his butt off for people he's never even met. And he goes on, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart, they could be united in love so that they may, give, they may have full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Like life's tough and Paul wants to make sure that, that all his folks, all these people that he loves, they're encouraged in heart and they're united in love. Here where he sees that, or do you see here where he says that? that they're encouraged in heart and united in love. Encouraged in heart is, a, encouraged is this really cool word that means sometimes to comfort. So sometimes encouragement has nice words, but sometimes encouragement has exhortation. And it has both parts in this word of encouragement. Exhortation is like, hey, stop messing up. But <laughs> exhortation can feel a little like snappy. And, and this word encouragement has both of those. It's the idea of enabling a person to become uh, to go through a difficult situation with confidence and gallantry. So to encourage someone means to like come alongside them to point out the flaws, but also to build them up so that whatever they face, they can face it like, like a hero. This word has a sense of that heroic that comes from it. And I, and I love the heroic. I love uh, superhero movies. I watch them all the time. I, I dream of making a difference in this life. I dream of being the hero in my story, not the, the villain in my story. I dream of God would say, like, great job when I get into heaven. See, God does not want us to navigate life as, like, whipped puppies. <laughs> That's not the meekness he had in mind when he said to, to be meek. God wants you to navigate in strength, not arrogance, but confidence in him, in who he made you to be. So, man, I want to tell you, it is okay to become strong powerful men in the Lord. And women, it is okay to become strong, confident women in the Lord. That's what God wants from us. So don't fall for the enemy's lies that you're no good or that you're worthless or that you have low value. None of that's true. Be encouraged in your heart. That's your core part of you. To know that as a believer, you have God power in you already and available to you. And then he says to be united in love. The true wisdom Paul wanted them to know in Jesus would unite them in love, not divide them. The false teaching of these uh, false prophets, that it always divides. If you want to know if someone is a false teacher, false prophet, see how much division they cause in their lives. It'll be a clear indicator and stay far away from that kind of person. And so uh, Paul says the wisdom that God has unites, doesn't divide. When we unite in love, that, that brings an incredible power that's available when we're united in love. With the love of Christ in us collectively and the love for one another, there's no darkness, there's no lows, there's no hardships, no life-difficult circumstances that would overwhelm me or overwhelm us as we're united. And that's all found in the mystery of, of God, Jesus the Christ. He says, Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, this is an important 
idea from uh, Paul in his letter to the Colossians. With this, Paul refutes uh, some of the bad teaching that had troubled the Colossian Christians. They were influenced by these teachers that were that told them to seek the treasure and wisdom uh, and knowledge, but not in Jesus, to seek it in these uh, secret books that they had. And so there was this group called the Gnostics, and the Gnostics said that, like, uh, we, we have these uh, secret books, so God's revealed to us a special message. We wrote it down, and it's only for the select few who can come look at these books. And that, that's where the knowledge is hidden in. It's sort of like uh, Church of Scientology, if you know anything about them. You, you go in at level one, and if you pay a little bit more, you can go to level two, and a little bit more, you can go to level three. And, and so that was sort of the Gnostics of the day, the same sort of thing. And it wasn't available for everyone. And so when Paul uses this word, wisdom is hidden in Christ, He's actually using this ancient Greek word uh, called apocryphos, and you might be familiar with that because the apocrypha is these like non-biblical books. Uh, sometimes we refer it to the, those kind of things. And so he uses this word. They were using this word as like, we have, the, we have the special knowledge. And then Paul takes that same word and he says, no, what you have is, the, the, uh, if you look here, the all uh, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge they're found in Christ. They're not found in special books. They're not found for the ones who could pay to get to level seven. They're not found in some other place other than Christ. And so he uses the same word that they were using, but he says it's not a secret library or a secret level you have to get to. It's actually available to everyone in Christ because Christ is available to all. He's not hidden or, or far away. He is available free and right now. He wanted them to know that real wisdom is not hidden in secret books but it rather deposited in Jesus Christ for all to access it. It's like a universal library card. You can get the book of Jesus anytime you want. Just look at him. In our last section, he says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in the body, I'm present with you in the spirit, and I delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So those who told the Colossians to find wisdom and knowledge apart from the simplicity of Jesus, they, they were very persuasive. Like clearly, because Paul had to write them, people were listening to them. And, and the lure of hidden or deep meanings of stuff or, or knowledge that, that I can sort of get and just me get, that, that, can, that can be strong and deceptive. So Paul reminds them to look to the truth of Christ. Remember, this is our theme of the whole book of Colossians, to look at the truth of Christ so that they wouldn't be deceived by fine-sounding arguments. And then through prayer and purpose, Paul says he genuinely feels united to them, for, to those Christians. He said, I'm united with you in spirit, though I'm not with you presently. And he says, I'm confident in your ability to overcome because you guys have these two cool characteristics. He says, jump that verse right back up there again at the very end. He says, here are those two characteristics that the church of Colossae said. He says that you are disciplined. Discipline has this frame of mind that they wouldn't be pulled off of target. Discipline is a military term which indicates that they help one another stay in formation. They, they stay in proper order. And so he says, your church is doing a great job of helping one another. You see someone gets out of order, you help them get straight back again. They're disciplined, not easily pulled off of task or away from Jesus. And this is so awesome, not just self-disciplined. He said, you all are disciplined together as a church. So cool, sort of like saying the church is marching in step together. What a cool phrase. And then he says that, that you guys are firm in your faith. 
Firm in your faith is another military word for solidarity. Uh, it, it's this dense word. It's sort of like, like saying you, you guys are a tight fist or like a, a, you're presenting a solid front as a church. But the firmness is not in military might. It's not in beating up other non-Christians or beating up other Christians. Rather, that this firmness comes both individually and collectively as we find ourselves in this really firm place of Christ. A shared commitment to faith. A shared commitment to say like, hey, if you're hurting, I'm hurting. I want to be next to you. If you're rejoicing, I'm rejoicing. I want to be next to you. If you need my help, I'm there. If I need your help, I'm, I need you to be there. I'm praying for you. I'm caring for you. I'm walking alongside of you. We are in step. We are firm and we're disciplined. And he says about this church at Colossae, he says, that's one of the things I know you're going to overcome heresy because you are that together. And I would say the same thing for our church. When I look around at our church, I am always so impressed about your ability to be next to one another, to, that the church is more important than the pastor. That's my favorite part about this church is that you guys meet without me all of the time. I, I love it. I love that there are lunch meetings, there are, th there are prayer meetings I don't know about, there are text threads that I'm not involved with. I don't have to approve or like do anything like that you guys care genuinely for one another. I absolutely love that. And that you help one another, you mentor, you care, you come alongside, you march in step together in this like firmness. It's so fantastic. So through hope and encouragement, united in love with discipline and, and firm faith, we could face any of the suffering that comes our way. As we step into the truth of Christ together, um, as we live for him, as we grow in him, as we really take in what he's talking about today, that each of us gets to get stronger together. And that's a, that's a smile-worthy phrase. I hope when we're listening to this, like God's saying, like, you, you are strong. I am with you. No matter suffering, even in the worst of things, you can rejoice. That we can follow Jesus with our whole hearts, both individually and corporately. And we're just going to get stronger because Christ unites us in love. Christ is at work in each of us. Let's take a pause. Put your heart on God. And when you're ready, would you stand and, and close together as we worship?